Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. Hi, Jim. Hi, David. Traditional greeting tonight. Yes. And yes, we are. We are actually recording this on Wednesday night. Uh, yeah. Night the episode will drop. Hopefully, yep. it will get published out to a feed to all of our listeners and not be, you know, hidden into the obscurity of uh, Podbean and the ineptitude of Podbean. Somehow, we got we didn't do too bad for downloads yesterday, considering the fact that it was like it fifteen was or something. Growing. But but none of it was current. It was the current episode. I, we like have fifty, that. right? We have fifty right now. Yeah, somewhere in there. No, but I'm talking about yesterday. Oh yeah, it was almost nothing. Yeah, it was like nothing. That's why I knew something was wrong. Yeah, we got no, we got some people are listening today. Yep. Um, I think that number would be higher if it were you know coming out of schedule. I suspect tomorrow right. is going to be much higher. Yes, um, I hope so. So we've been we've been on again, off again with ratings. Sometimes you guys are blowing us up. Sometimes it's been you know I don't want to say lapsedaisical, but like. We can tell that there's people that don't listen to us on the days the episode drops, and that's fine. Like, we don't care yeah. as long as you guys are, you know, still finding the material fun. So yeah. I'm going to skip the housekeeping this week. Um, okay. I'm going to keep with the, the stuff. I do want to, um, instead of going through the housekeeping, I do want to remind people we have Patreon. We have all those things. Um, listen to another episode, maybe the previous one. You'll get the housekeeping there. I am going to record the housekeeping, and we will tack it on right after the intro in every episode co- uh, going forward. I just haven't done it yet. Um, the other thing I want to say to our listeners is just remember we have a Facebook group. It's an active community. You can find it at practicalguitars.com slash groups slash practical guitar or at facebook.com slash group slash practical guitarist. And, uh, join us, join us just like in yeah, evil dead. Join us. Um, so we got a or special like the Borg. Out. Yeah. Resistance this is, is futile. futile. You will, you will join us because resistance is futile. Um, <laughs> Does that make me Lacutus? No, that probably makes you Lacutus, right? Yeah, I'm Lacutus. You're, you're definitely the closer to the admiral or the captain. So I'm, I'm closer to his age than you are. That's you know, sure. Probably. I don't know. Shit, he doesn't age. He's like a vampire. I know. I right? saw him in that movie Life Force, which is a Toby Hooper film from like 1984, and he looks yeah. just as old as he does now. And it's like young. 30 or 40 it's, years later. It's, it's weird. Like, you know, he's going back to, he's going back to Star Trek. I don't know. Oh yeah. Fuck yeah. He is. <laughs> like, yeah. Cool. I'm like, excited as shit for it. It's awesome. Um, so, uh, before, a guy that can do family guy as easily as he can do Star Trek. It's okay. In my book, Patrick Stewart's one of the, one of the most talented actors that has been alive while I've been alive. Um, yep. so yeah, that being said, all right, um, we got a special episode for you guys tonight. We're going to talk about something that's very far from my heart and very, very far from Jim's heart, too, probably, uh, but very close to our technique. Far from our heart, yes. but close to our technique. And that's tonight we're talking about shred. And and what your definition of shred yeah, is. Yeah, because I think we touched on this topic a couple episodes ago. Uh, it couldn't have been more than four episodes ago at this point. Um, and we talked about how some people say shred as a definitional thing is, um, 
it is just, people who play quickly, right? Yes. And then some playing. people say it's it's you know a guy that's really good at guitar, and it doesn't matter whether he's playing fast or not. So I could right. see somebody out there, some not me, but somebody out there would make the argument that David Gilmore is a great shredder, that he knows how to shred the guitar. Look, that's the surfer like terminology for shred, meaning that they know how to mount, mount the wave and do it really well. Um, right. But that's not necessarily the genre of music that is shred. Um, <clears throat> I think the genre of music is more based around specific techniques, high speed. And uh, yeah, that's, that's my opinion. So Jim, take away. Okay. So when I grew up shredding, I'll, I'll give you an example of a shredder. When I grew up, Roy Clark, was a shredder. Like. Okay, I could see that. Yeah, and he wasn't. He wasn't. Um, but did they call uh, it shred back? Then? back then? But they didn't call right. it shred back then, though. No, they just called him a picker. Yeah. So, yeah, and and they didn't call it shredding because yeah. again, we hadn't adopted that that term because I do think it came from the uh, the surfing community, as you mentioned. I also uh, feel there. Well, I feel there's a visceral connection between the word shred and then like this whole like wall of distortion that gets created when you go fast and all the, you know, the picking, um, I don't necessarily. And I, so some people consider Alan Holdsworth a shredder. I don't, I think he kind of predates that movement a little bit. Um, yeah. Aldi Miola would be one of the pioneers, uh, cause he was so good at alternate. He is so good at alternate picking. Um, but that's, that's kind of what I was thinking. Like that's where the term actually comes from. Well, you know, so what I was getting at is when I came up, the term shred hadn't been adopted yet. And when I heard folks like um, uh, Malmsteen and I was uh, just Satriani gonna... in the early years yeah. um, and UFO, we had uh, Shanker, Shanker and those guys. And, yeah. Right. They kind of referred to them as neoclassical. It yes. wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, I'm it not hadn't saying it wasn't matured into its own genre yet. Right. But it was, yeah. So they called these guys neoclassical players. Vi was one of the early ones. Um, Which is so funny know, because some of the guys you're mentioning don't do anything that's really in the vein of classical music. Yeah, but that was, I mean, I guess that be, it was because it was the closest thing you could get to. I mean, you take, well, I'll give you three examples of people that do, um, you know, or did, I should say, because one of them isn't with us anymore. Randy Rhodes yes. definitely took. A book, you know, from his book, he was sure. real classical. Right. Well, he was a he was a classical guitar player before he was ever involved with rock electric guitar. So, right. Malmsteen definitely takes a a page from um, the classical. Yes. Uh, well, uh, he is the neoclassical guy. Like he, I don't think anybody would argue that um, he's not like the penultimate one, and, and penultimate and also originator. For a lot right. of people, even though like Randy Rose was clearly doing it before him, I feel like um, Randy Rose was still doing it and mixing it with enough rock that you, if you weren't paying attention, you might not see the classical influence. Whereas Ingve right. was like Baroque and roll. <laughs> right, exactly. And and Shanker was a, um, you know, he was a guy that was uh, trying to hide it. Sure. But he was definitely a neoclassical player in that respect. What was I? I was watching something on TV the other day, and they were it was three people, unlikely people, 
uh, sitting down talking about music. I was it was a Frank Zappa interview from the seventies. No, it's probably well, there's another guy. I mean that. Yeah. So Perez <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, yeah. but, but he's, he's being interviewed and I forget what TV show it was. Um, if maybe if I can find the interview, I'll put it in the show notes. Michael, Don't Michael quote Douglas, me. It may not be in the show notes, but if I find it, I'll, I'll put it up there. Um, and he, uh, was sitting down with three guys and there was like two other dude, uh, Kenny, Kenny Rogers was one of them on the couch with him. And then there was another dude and I didn't recognize him. And, he was talking about, you know, some people enjoy pop music and whatever. He's like, I really enjoy classical music. And I actually, I believe it was the, uh, the interviewer that asked him, so I understand you, you enjoy classical music. Um, and he starts going on, well, yeah. He's like, I like, you know, like Varez and stuff like that. And then both guests, including Kenny Rogers, were like, oh, no, we absolutely love classical music. And it was almost this moment where you realize, like, these guys don't do anything in that genre, but they have, like, total persistent, you know, like they're involved in it and they're still listening to, in fact, uh, Kenny Rogers was talking about Bach and um, yep. Mozart and stuff. So it's just, it, it was just really shocking to think like, here's this country guy who uses basically um, almost all of his music is based on, you know, based folk progressions and things like that. And right. he's, he's sitting there laughing. He's like, yeah, I don't even listen to that crap. I listen to Bach, you know, it's like, yeah, I think that, I think that one of the things that people um, forget is that the people that you that that we we as a genre as a as a group of guitar players so on so forth that kind of hold it a little bit more in steam don't necessarily um like like you were saying Kenny Rogers not, might not play classical but listen to it so he can't help but have some of that come through in what he does and all Harmonies. I'm saying is right and and because of that you start to uh, um you start to see wait a minute, there's, there's things these guys are doing or these gals are doing that are not quite in the genre, but they work in the genre. You know right. what I mean? And I we'll get, we can get more into that when we talk about yeah. some of the, some sure. of the techniques, because I think we should talk about technique later, but go ahead. Just moving from classical shred into what comes next. Cause I know that's where we were, we were going before I took us on this walk off in the, you know, birds. yeah, you've got classical shred, blues shred, jazz shred. And, and obviously you've got, uh, yeah, no. I mean, at one point, I just looked at it and said, Crash. you know, looking back at the the history of things, I said, okay, so we we had neoclassical, and then we had yeah. we had thrash metal, right, with what? the soloing that was going on there, and then somehow from that, born out of that, mixing with things like traditional rock music, traditional blues music, and jazz, that's how we ended up at Just Shred, okay, right. So okay. yeah, that was kind of the path. We went from neoclassical to metal and i'm not just gonna say thrash metal because they are there's also in the hair metal stuff too that's right and then from there it branched out into all these different other aspects so well, when you when you think about it there were a lot of jazz shredders yep probably there more still so. are yeah. still are probably probably more so than than rock shredders yeah um, at least, but i think it's at least in the beginning yeah but i think it's convenient to what they do too because um so like jazz is always about pushing the state of the instrument and the and the musicianship at least in yeah. bop jazz, um, yeah. a step further. And so guys like Aldi Miola, um, yeah. which if you haven't, there's a lot of people in my generation that haven't really discovered Miola. Um, that guy basically invented alternate picking in the modern sense, the way that we use it now. So many people owe him so much in terms of how they've built their alternate picking technique. Uh, yeah. People are just straight up ripping him off. In fact, even Ingve at one point in an interview somewhere many years ago, I read him say like, "Yeah, I listen to a lot of Miola," 
And yep. but the funny thing is, he Igbe's doing mostly economy picking, but uh, I, he was getting interested in that sound. You know, yeah. I just heard an interview with Zach Wild today. Um, it's an older interview, but I was heard listening to, and he was talking about you know um, Demiola and yep. what he stole from Dem, you know Aldemiola. Everybody so, stole yeah, it from Demiola, even if they don't know it. Yeah. So um, Alex Skolnick is a prime example, right? Who's the um, there's one big J. Uh, John McLaughlin. Yeah, John McLaughlin. And these guys took a page from, obviously, Les Paul, the man, not the guitar. Um, and, uh, you know, going back, um, you've got. Uh, I mean, McLaughlin uh, was. Django Reinhardt. Uh, yeah, Reinhardt. Well, so when you get back to the gypsy jazz stuff, um, yep. their approach is so different to the way that they're doing it. I almost want to distinguish that as it's like its own thing. Because Dipsy Jazz sure. definitely has a, a very specific way and a specific tradition that drives that music. Um, right. I'm just saying that a lot of these people were taking little Like Charlie Christian, somebody like that. I yep. can see you making the argument there that, you know, yes, for his time, um, he was yep. he was doing it. So for me, Shred it really becomes pushing the state of the instrument from a physical level to the, yep. to the next level. Um, and I think the artists that I like tend to be the ones that transcend just the physical. So right. they have to be able to actually write songs that I'm interested in. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be um, either instrumental or not instrumental. They don't have to be vocal pieces, right. um, but it just has to capture a certain mood. So like a classic example for most people, um, I'm not a huge fan of, of Satriani, but he brings that vocal quality to his instrumental music the way he yeah. plays and so a lot of people are able to grasp his songs a little bit easier um whereas somebody like vi i love vi but i know that a lot of people cannot follow his music because it's just so off the wall well I mean, his yeah look at what he came up through i yeah, mean he, as it's, a, a, kid, it's a product was, of frank zappa i mean that's basically right. what it is um he was in frank zappa's bandit like what like 18 or something some some yeah, ridiculous age like that um yeah. zappa used to call him his little italian virtuoso and yep. I was and and one of these documentaries I was watching this weekend, um, he was being interviewed and he said that Frank basically told him like when he when he interviewed and and then auditioned for the band, like Frank told him he's like you know this is great that you're joining the band and everything, but how am I going to keep you here? Because he know right? he knew already like this guy is yeah. going to outdo me before it's over with. And right. I, I would say if anybody's carrying the torch for Frank other than uh, Dweezil, because Dweezil's yep. obviously doing it too. Uh, it would be Steve I. Um, his music and the way that his performances and stuff are all structured is very much in the vein of, um, I would say, a more mature Frank Zappa. Because I don't see, yeah, I don't see Vi making dick jokes. Okay, I, um, yeah, yeah, or talking about the yellow snow, but um, or you know the whole Joe's garage. Thing. Don't yeah. you eat that yellow snow? Yellow snow. Um, that was uh, all, uh, Tina Turner on that, by the way. Catholic girls. Yeah. Um, you know, but the uh, the thing about um, Vi, I think, is he's taking it forward. Zappa, Dweezil, no no offense to his abilities because he's an incredible player. It's almost like the difference is, between a museum, with right. meaning, meaning Zappa, Dweezil Zappa, right. versus um, an engineer building on the shoulders of genius. Right. So I could go. I could go see Henry Ford's Model T. Or I right. could buy a Tesla. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. that's that's the, the I, I know that's a, a gross that's exaggeration, way, but that's the way yes. I see it. 
I mean, when you when you think about it, who did Dweezil call to say, hey, I need to learn my dad's music? Yeah, he called the guy that knew it all. <laughs> That's right. The he guy knew, that transcribed the, most of it. Okay. He called the man, right? Um, um, for me, so I'm a, I'm a more of a vocal person. So for me, um, instrumental music has to have a vocal quality. But I do see a lot of vocal quality in what Vi does. Yeah, um, like Whispering a Prayer, for example. Um, the reason that I like Satriani is because even though he can shred, and he obviously does, um, he doesn't necessarily. I mean, you take a song like Summer Song. He has a lot of restraint to his. And he, yeah, he really pulls back. So I see restraint. Um, when I was younger, I used to question whether it was like whether it was restraint, restraint, or that he couldn't perform the things the same way. It was like G three tours. You can only you can get the old DVDs. And you can yep. watch him and, and Vi jam and like Vi does not know how to. Well, I don't want to say he doesn't know how to restrain himself, but he doesn't. He doesn't hold back and he no. go and he goes for it every single time. Whereas Cetriani, sometimes you're like, dude, how are you even standing next to this guy? But I think and, it's honestly like he's trying to, you know, do something in the moment that is more introspective than what Vi's yeah. doing, which is extrospective. I'm not sure why this never worked out for him, but I think I think um, Satriani has always wanted to be like what he's done with Chickenfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's always wanted to be the guitar player in a band. Sure, yeah, and 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 Where, I definitely see that too. When you Satri, or Satriani wants to be the guitar player that the band circles around. No, right. no offense to, but that's the way I see it. Where Vi is more, or I mean, uh, Satriani is more about. I want to be the guitar player for the band, and I really wish yeah, I had a singer. Yeah, he really wants to fit so my the guitar- song, right? Whereas, whereas, so and and in that sense, I would say I maybe phrase it this way, and I don't want to take, I don't want this to be disrespectful, but I would say that Satriani is more of a player, whereas Vi is more of a composer because Vi is right. okay to stand out and do you know his thing in front of everything and and write everything around what he's doing. Absolutely, um, it would be like if a. Um, uh, if a composer was writing a piece for his pianist mm-hmm. and she, she was the center of the whole orchestra. Yeah. So the entire piece centered around the piano mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the, or the first violin or whatever. Mm-hmm. So then that's, that's where I'm at with that now. So well, that was, so generation one shredders were like the, the guys from Django on up, even though I didn't really lump jam Django in there. So then we got generation two, which is like, the guys from the mid seventies, probably to the mid eighties. So really starting with, um, uh, Schenker and people like that going all the yeah. way through Ingve, getting into Vi and Satriani, even yep. though their career extends and really takes off in the nineties, these yeah. guys were really starting the whole like seeds of what they were doing back then. So when we get to the nineties, we go through this period where, um, shred kind of goes underground. And it's it's a result of not having the giant platform that was hair metal to stick right. their music into. Um, so, and we they, really didn't have the internet yet on a, on a large scale and a high speed right. scale to allow people who still loved guitar music like myself to be able to get to it. So now we get it to was, the, yeah. So now we yeah. After that, we, we get YouTube and all this stuff. We got some artists that are becoming more artistic. And so they're willing to entertain having a, a musician in their band that is right. um, capable of holding a spot like, like, like that. So that's when we get into people like, um, I, I would say um, 
John Five, who's who's mentioned in the Facebook group, Dan Kish brought him yeah, up. Um, definitely. And it, and it's 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 kind of funny because once we get into these modern guys, you can see them grasping other genres significantly. And John Five's a, a fantastic example. John Five is absolutely a country player through and through. Don't let anybody tell you he's a metal player. No question. He about started it. as a country player. And if if you know any really good country players, they're amazing musicians because they number one train themselves to play over chord progressions like religiously. Um, they have the skill and speed. They can master certain techniques which elude a lot of shred players, like for example, chicken picking. Um, right. And I just see this more diversity coming out in this group. So John Five, uh, another good example. Zach Wild. Zach Wild. Zach Wild is is probably closer to the older mold. But still, very versatile player. A definitely a versatile musician. I mean, he's a piano player as well. Um, he's a singer, and he's not a bad singer. In fact, I, I, you can get his uh, copy of "Bridge Over Troubled Water," and it's like, who the hell is this guy? I mean, he's yeah. usually crushing beer cans on his head. Hmm. Like, what the fuck? Well, um, a lot of people, yeah. When when you're listening to some of that old um, Ozzy Osbourne stuff, you've got some of his vocals on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, like "Mama, I'm Coming Home." I believe he yep. wrote that song too. Yeah. Um, yep. So. I think that's still paying the bills for him. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Well, Black Label Society is a pretty successful band. I, he's not an A-lister, but that's paying some bills. Um, yeah, so we go we go through, you know, he, he's a good example. There was another person I was thinking of. Um, I was just referring to his chicken picking. Greg Cock. As in, yeah, Greg Cock. Well, well he's a guy that can play everything. I don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, but that's my point. He can play everything, but he's so incredibly skilled at his instrument that you watch the guy and you literally sit there and you go, how the fuck am I going to do that? Like, yeah. I, I don't care if you tab it out. It's, it, it's just, it, it's mind boggling. Um, and that's the characteristic that I think really hits the modern shred movement is that it's, it's to the point where the bar has been raised way beyond what's really all that possible. Like I can right. approach Ingve's music and I can say, all right, if I put in X amount of hours, I'm going to be able to play these pieces. Right. I don't know that I have the same feelings about Greg Cox material. I don't know right. that I have the same feelings about. Um, I'm not. I'm not thinking about. Um, there was another player that I was thinking in a similar vein. Um, it'll come to. It'll come to me later. But but the point is that um, that that distinction is what allows me to say not guitar hero, but this guy really does no shred. And yet the other thing you'll notice about these these guys is they tend to be um nowadays are a lot more all rounders, right? So instead of being yep. uh technically technically virtuosic, but then lacking the ability to form a cohesive song or something you could like listen to the whole record of, these guys are getting really good at putting out just like designing good classic songs. Right. Um so, you've got you've also got uh, Vinnie Moore. He was with um uh he was a late Later, um, yeah, Vinny, Vinny he was, was with uh, the group as well, right? Yep, he was with Alice Cooper, and he's been with UFO pretty much ever since that. Uh-huh. Um, another guy that was a later shredder, um, still out there, still doing it, still bringing it home. Um, one of the things that uh, I I like about um, the folks that that we've mentioned, most of the folks we've mentioned, um, is that they cannot just do vocal music or i mean um uh instrumental music they do vocal music as well yeah almost all of them have a vocal component i think john five might be the exception to that rule 
Well, he played with Rob Zombie, right? And he also no, played with yeah, um, Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson, right? And, and so I, he's got other groups, I think, too, but I don't know who they all are offhand. Yeah. I'm not saying that he's famous for stuff that he does vocally, but I'm just saying sure, that he's, um, he's used to working in a, in a unit that has something more to it than that. And right, actually, everyone, going back to even guys, the previous generation, you're going to find a lot of these guys ended up in bands where they had like vocal stuff going on. Um, right. I mean, even Ingve, even Malmsteen, yeah, yeah, but people bitch. But I mean, honestly, like his work with Jolyn Turner, and I and I mentioned on the show before, if you haven't heard those records, go get them because they're not bad. I don't know yeah. why people, you know, why people hate him because he's kind of a dick, like when he talks to people. But that doesn't mean that he's not like a talented player. Yeah, lots I'm of not, dicks out there that we listen to. Let's be honest. Yeah, I don't want to give him, you know, too much of a of an open door for you know. Yeah, but you got to remember, he did not grow up in the state, so he doesn't really have. They're, they're a lot more um, direct, direct. <laughs> yeah. about what they say, and uh, I grew up in a family like that, so people are like, "Wow, you could be a kind of a dick, Jim," and I'm, at the same time, like, um. So one of the one of the other things I wanted to bring up is um, uh, each of these guys. Uh, that we've mentioned, and we shouldn't shouldn't leave out um, the women in the in the group as well. Um, obviously, it's it's happened more of the later years um, than it did in the earlier years of, of Shred. Sure, but um, you certainly had uh, um, people holding their own now. Um, and we've mentioned Nita Strauss. Many, yeah, many there's times. a bunch of them, but Nita Strauss yeah. is the one that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and honestly, like. Even Orianti, to an extent, kind of fits yep. that mold, except her music yep. is more pop oriented. Um, yep. Yeah, it's it's the we, we've really definitely got a changing dynamic today, especially in that kind of music. And I and I I'm more comfortable now, and this is why I laugh because I see all these Facebook groups where people like poo poo shred music, and it's like I would never listen to that. And I kind of laugh because I'm like, well, now it's the most listenable it's ever been. You know, there are some people who would say something like that every week, once a week, there was a TV show that came on. I mentioned him already. Roy Clark was on there and you'd, you'd see right in the beginning of it. I'm a picking and I'm a grinning. And uh, they would open that thing with Roy on a banjo or Roy yeah, on a guitar going insane and ripping it up. And he once he once did. There's a video. I'll have to I'll have to find it to share it. But there's a video of him ripping up and he's like, here's how I play fast and just tearing the guitar to pieces, you know, as far as um, uh, as a player. And and this guy had popular you know, what, on television. He was yeah. a, he was he was a go to call guy, kind of like um, who's the country player that everybody loves now. But um, uh, the guy that's on every record. Well, oh, Brad oh. Paisley, but. Well, that's um, I gotta say he's another modern shred player that nobody is like closet Brent, a closet shred player. Brent Mason. Yeah, Brent Mason's the yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, Paisley, obviously. Um Brent Mason is a is an example of a country shredder. Um, yep. <clears throat> you know. So um all I'm saying is that, that that shred music is still there. And and as much as I hate uh a lot of the new pop country, at least once in a while. You got a sh- you got a shreddy solo in there, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it is still on the radio. Yeah, I mean, it's. I would say it's in that vein. I don't say so. You you can play shred music and not be a shred player, like, right. and and that's a, an important distinction here. So when we talk about shred players, we're talking about people that make their living 
and have and have you know cultivated a style that is definitely in that vein. Um, I think there's also this whole underground shred movement that's going on right now that's really kind of interesting. Um, so you've got like guys like Joe Stump, uh, who's the one guy, Rusty Cooley. Um, I would say even arguably like Michelangelo Badio is kind of an underground guy right now because he's not you know burning up the you know the um, airwaves with new records or whatever. The one that the one that I love, Vernon Reed, he is definitely in the shred vein, but he is like he's so avant garde that it's almost jazz, and he's kind of operated under the radar almost his entire career, ever since the first or actually probably the second um, Living Color record. I mean, he's basically been off the grid. And I mean, there's a guy that's been doing it the entire time and is still making interesting music. Um, we talk about John five being the country shredder, Brent Mason being the country shredder. I think um, I would, I would put Vernon Reed as the urban shredder. So, Oh yeah. It just, it just because of his projects, like with mask and working with um, uh, DJs, rap groups, whoever to, you know, to achieve some sort of interesting, unique new form of music. Um, I mean, you know, so now the question is, would you throw somebody like Jimi Hendrix in the in the shredding category? So I think Jimi Hendrix owes a lot of these guys owe a lot to him. I would say he's probably more on the blue side of things than the shred genre itself. Certainly, he's definitely a virtuoso and that and that'll give him and all of these people that we're talking about, they're all virtuosos. And there are other people we could throw into these things like um, uh, uh, Angus and Malcolm Young, um, Slash. I don't consider those guys shred players. I would consider them virtuosos in their instrument because what they do, they mastered it and they do it very well. But they don't they don't necessarily, you know, they're, they're not about pushing the state of the instrument forward in the same way. Uh, Jimmy right. probably is more about pushing the state of the instrument forward. Um, although I feel like his music is so focused on songs and not focused on technique. Like I don't see Jimmy ever doing something that's just like, Hey, look at me. This is a technique that I invented that uh, I have mastered. And now you're all going to have to innovate and do the same thing because everything Jimmy did, somebody else was already doing. It was just the way in which he did it and the way in which he combined it all to make this cohesive psychedelic sound. Um, For example, a lot of people have credited Jimmy for the, you know, the use of overdriven electric guitar. Well, blues guys were doing that for years before he ever got a hold of it. I mean, Albert King, for example, was just cranking the shit out of everything he played through. Um, use of fuzz, fuzz pedals that existed for a good 10 years before Jimmy took the, took the fuzz face and went nuts with it. Um, I mean, everybody from, from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones had already used them like long before he did. Um, and even some of his like famous effects, like the wah pedal that, you know, he basically mastered to use that thing. He got the idea to use the wah pedal after hearing Frank Zappa use one and then getting one from Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa actually gave him. one. Um, so it, when you stop and you kind of like examine the root of everything that was going on there, he very much was standing on the shoulders of people that had come before him. And I, I'm OK with that because I think the music he gave us was I mean, I have the utmost respect for Jimi Hendrix. The music he gave us was an absolute masterpiece. Every everything he gave us was just unbelievable. Um, but it's one of those clear moments where um, 
it was the culmination of everything that had come before at that point. So it's like you got blues mixed with these melodies that don't quite sound right coming from maybe a more jazz oriented or blues oriented background. And, and then of course, mixing it with rock and roll rhythms, um, even use of, of uh, electric bass and some of the stuff. I mean, electric bass in the 1960s was not that relatively common. right. It was relatively new. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I don't, I don't think a lot of people understand that uh, this is the classic example I give to people is that his time period when he was going through right around Woodstock, for example, if we think about that being the, the moment where Jimi Hendrix finally just like kind of threw off the chains of everything that had come before and said, all right, we took, we've taken all this stuff. We've assimilated it and made something new. Um, what other bands were playing at Woodstock? Shanana and people like that too. So it's just like, what the hell? You, you, you almost can't fathom the explosion of different ideas that were coming out of the late sixties like that. Um, so Shana, I was thinking about Shanana. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of folk music at Woodstock as well. Um, and really yeah. the two stand out like future performers of rock and roll or people that were going to be hard, you know, like seen as the, the prophets of rock and roll were really Carlos Santana and Jimi Hendrix. Well, yeah. If you look at, um, if you look at the time frame in the sixties, Dylan was booed off stage for playing a Stratocaster. Yep. Not because not because people didn't like him or because he wasn't a good player, or whatever. I personally, I'm not a big Dylan fan just because I don't like his vocals. But that said, he was booed off stage because it was a Stratocaster and not an acoustic guitar. Well, put it. Let's put it. Let's put it in the broadest terms I can think of. In 1950, you would have turned on the radio and heard big band music. Yeah. By 1970, you're turning on the radio and hearing a plethora of different things, but basically yeah. music descended from blues and music descended yep. from jazz and yep. not a whole lot of classical yet. That it, that yep. influence didn't start coming back into the music in mass really until bands. Well, I guess maybe Jethro Tull would be like an exception, but really didn't start coming in in mass until metal started, you know, like the, the new British wave of heavy metal. Right. Cause but- yeah. Right. When I grew up, you could still hear a jazz tune once in a while. Yep. Um, you hear them on I, the radio. I told I told somebody uh, somebody several years younger than me the other day. Uh, I said, you know, I I like jazz music. And they go, what does that sound like? I, I was like, wait, what? Like, how the fuck do you not know what that sounds? You know, like, wait, what? And then it just dawned on me. There's no fucking radio stations to play anywhere. You buy a smooth no. jazz. I, and I can remember in the 80s, even in the 90s, hearing a quote-unquote oldie station and the oldie station playing 50s music. You don't really hear that anymore. No, you I mean, don't. You don't hear Elvis anymore. And you don't hear um, uh, the stuff that even even the 60s are leaving. I can't tell you when the last time I heard a Beatles on the radio was. Or the, Well, we hear the Beatles here all the time, but um, the, one that, the one that gets me is Simon and Garfunkel. It's yeah. basically absent from radio here now. Yeah. Um, for a while there, I was hearing like sounds of silence and stuff like that, um, all the time. And now it's, I don't hear any of that shit. Um, right. So I, and I'm just saying that there is a, there is definitely, um, a period of time where for some reason we feel that, um, that's gotta be turned off blues. I, I remember growing up, um, and hearing blues a lot. And I'm not talking about like, 
Hendrix blues or Stevie Ray Vaughan blues. I'm talking about the old blues players. Yeah. Like Albert King and people before right, that Albert even. King and B.B. Fr- Freddie King and, and you know, Freddie Henry King, King, Burger King. Burger King, yeah. Um, but, uh, and, um, you know, you would hear Charlie Christian on the radio. You would hear a lot of different stuff on the radio. And now I go, wow, I can't remember the last time really, and, and in this area, it's, it's, it's horrible, um, that I heard blues on the radio at all of any kind. I'm even talking about Hendrix. Yeah, and, uh, well, you don't even hear that stuff as like a uh, a bumper ad. I mean, no. it's just craziness. It's almost like it's being erased from existence. And yeah. we all know. So Stevie Ray Vaughan in the 1980s was kind of seen as the, the savior of blues because blues was almost extinct at that point, too. Um, right. And when he when Texas flood hit and then he got his platinum record and everybody started, you know, like cooling, cooling in and following his influences and all this, he basically brought this whole like revival in blues music. And actually, um, I think after his death, I think we had a, a resurgence for a few years and then, you know, it kind of fizzled out. And then we had Joe Bonamassa kind of carry the torch. But the right. funny thing was. Bonamassa in the beginning was a lot more innovative than he is now. And he was really willing to accept like British blues, which is why his music sounded basically like Led Zeppelin in a lot of ways. And then all of a sudden he did this turnaround about five years ago where he's like, I'm going to wear suits on stage and wear sunglasses and I'm going to be a blues man. And I just kind of laugh because I'm like, dude, you're so far from what, what like the, the traditional blues men were anything like, they didn't have money, number one. So yeah. they might have two or three guitars, and that may only depend on if, whether they lost the poker game the night before. Okay. Yeah. Um, Albert King is a classic example. He had the, he played Flying V's turned upside down, and some of his famous ones were lost in a poker game. And so yeah. they ended up being traded through various hands, and now they're owned by Steven Seagal, of all people. But yeah. um, it's just, it's really funny when you think about it. Like, to somebody like Bonamassa, who, who has, more 59 less Pauls than, exi- than, than were made originally. And, yeah, uh, exactly. and has them thrown at him at any given moment. Yet yep. he thinks he's a blues man in some way. I just don't get it. I honestly don't. Well, it's like when I hear um, a, a white, um, I don't think anything, um, don't take anything wrong. I hope folks from this, but uh, a young white kid no, no, that's not where I'm going with that. No, I just have to bring this up. Since we're talking about this, I have this giant painting on the floor here. And then yeah. my wife, or my wife, my mom painted for this for me. Um, and I think it was a, a birthday present, but this has got to go up in the in the room here. Um, she painted this painting of uh, Steve Ray Vaughan for me. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. This whole, I have tremendous respect for blues players. And I, I Steve Ray Vaughan is one of my all-time favorite players. He's the guy I try not to emulate as much as possible because I think there's too much Steve Ray Vaughan emulation going yeah, on. Yeah, there's but. already, yeah. It's the, it's the old joke. How many guitar players does it take to play a Stevie Ray Vaughan song? Yeah, so. Apparently all of them. But anyway, um, no, what I was saying is that um, uh, when it came to, when it comes to, uh, I'll see a, a, a young white kid, um, you know, blasting out, um, you know, the, the, um, the the black rap from the early nineties, yeah, like NWA 90s. Like, or something, you know, yeah, NWA and stuff. And I'm like, what is this saying? To you? you have no clue. I'm, I know, I don't have a clue, 
So I'm smart enough to know I don't have a clue to what these people are talking about. This is this is something from their hearts. This was written. This was that was their raw. That was the punk music of rap at yeah. that time that was yeah. coming out, and it was and it was real and it was raw and it was exciting and it was new and it was. And then and then it quickly got like turned into a commodity and well, became shitty. Once, but because once people, let's face it, even even the the punk wave that came from England in the seventies um, became a joke once money became involved. Because once money comes in. Yeah. Um, you can say you're living ruined. the principle right up until they sign that check. That's right. <laughs> and you're like, oh, then, shit. <laughs> yeah, once you take that money, it's gone. Not you personally, but I mean, when when it when it starts to, when money starts to control the, the um, genre, then it's no longer the raw thing that it was. It's, it's a parody of itself in a way. Well, but anyway, yeah. that's, that's what I was getting at. So I see Joe Bonamassa like that white kid that's listening to rap on, you know, on um, NWA at the, you know, singing lyrics. He definitely shouldn't be singing out loud, um, you know, at the top of his voice. And then all of a sudden, <clears throat> like he's become a parody of himself because of it. Yeah, he sees where he sees the the instrument virtuosity and all that. And he just doesn't understand the lifestyle that drove it. Right. But there wasn't really I. that's the thing. The instrument versus virtuosity, we've reverse engineered it. So we've looked at it and said, what makes that great? Rich, Rick Beato has a, a yes. whole series of what makes this song great. He breaks it down for you. But he, he admits in it, do, were they thinking this when they wrote it? Hell no. They weren't thinking that when they wrote it. They wrote what they felt good and what that's, sounded yeah, good. That's why it works, but that's right. not what they were attempting to do. You know, like, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, you can reverse engineer it. But the second, the second it gets reverse engineered, um, then somebody says, I can make money by creating you a know, copy. a copy and then a copy of a copy. And a one, copy of the, of a copy. one of the few yeah. cases where I think a band actually reverse engineered themselves to death was um, uh, uh, The Knack. Their, oh, first, yes. their first record was great. Their second yep. record was a carbon copy of the first. Track oh by God. track, right carbon to, copy of the first. The and, order and of the it, tracks, everything. Yeah, that's why it flopped. And yep. actually, the second record isn't that bad. Oh. It would be a lot better if it didn't match the first. <laughs> right. But it's not that bad. Well, he got lazy. I mean, the, the guy, you know, the I think it was that, and yeah. I think it was a little bit of panic, too. I think it was one of these situations where it was like, oh, shit, we got a massive hit on our hands. We didn't expect to get this big this fast. What do we do now? And there was a lot of pressure. There were people mm -hmm. comparing them to the Beatles. Yeah. There's always that person that's got to go, oh, these guys are the next Beatles. And I don't know. Is there going to ever be a next Beatle? I don't know. But I don't know that the Beatles were as great as people make them out to be. They were popular. Yeah. But no, yeah, exactly. And believe it or not, the Beatles were a little bit when the Stones came out, the Stones went their direction once they stopped trying to be a Beatles clone, which was very early. Yeah. Um, well, they, 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 they were. I mean, once they told their label to go fuck themselves. <laughs> right. Then they became something um, that the Beatles were trying to strive to do. And and think about what the Beatles were doing towards the end. They were like, yeah, we're not going to we're not going to tour. We're just going to record and we're going to make stuff that. You literally couldn't tour. You couldn't tour Sgt. Pepper's if your life depended on it. I think the more interesting aspect of the Beatles, and I'm going to take this bird walk because I was having this conversation with my wife the other day, is that once once the Beatles ended, right? So Paul McCartney goes off and he does Wings and, and um, 
John Lennon does his thing. And uh, George actually kind of stalled for a while, didn't really do much. And then all of a sudden he started doing things. Um, and Ringo, of course, what the hell? Um, but but let's let's just look at John. And, Ringo was Ringo. <laughs> John and Paul, right? Um, right? And you can see that Paul understood the success of um, Sergeant Peppers, right? Right. And so he went off and made wings. And then if you look at things like Band on the Run, like it's pretty clear that he's trying to emulate the Sergeant Pepper idea of like the amalgamation right. mashup uh, collage type writing scenarios. Whereas John was trying to go back and revisit some of the, um, the earlier like simplistic Beatles stuff. Right. Um, it was almost like the band had become too overcomplicated for him. And so now he wanted to go back and, you know, straighten it out. Um, so to the, of that token, um, it, you can infer from this that that's really what caused the demise of their band. But the Beatles is, to me is really two separate bands. We have the psychedelic band, which is right. Paul McCartney taking over yep. and, and controlling music. And then we have the John Lennon band, which I don't care for at all. Which was the, which was the pop side of it. Yeah, and, and I honestly don't care for it all. In fact, um, I don't really care for all of Paul McCartney stuff either. Uh, it's a lot of his solo crap. I just, you can just shove it up your ass. Like, I don't, I, simply having a wonderful Christmas time is like fucking nails on a chalkboard to me. And if I have to hear that song, like, ask my wife. I literally will plug my ears or cry myself to sleep. It's it's fucking horrendous. Um, but, yeah, I'd rather hear Lennon's um, So This Is Christmas and and Ono screeching uh, over I that. I don't fucking hear than, that either. Than hearing McCartney's um, <laughs> uh, but But... Um, to his credit, so we were talking about Band on the Run. There's that part in the beginning of Band on the Run that they could have turned into its own song, and it would. And if they had, I'd be like, "Fuck yeah, wings!" Like all the way. But instead, they made it this like happy little pop song, you know, with the little uh, like the steel guitar type thing over it, and it's like this is fucking terrible. I honestly can't. Uh, I just can't dig that song at all. The, I, I love it. The, the the intro part where it's you know it's got like a minor key and it's like you know it's a little slower and that's great. Once they get to the end, it's just the chord progression just doesn't do it. It's not really the music so so much as the chord progression just does nothing. I loved most of what um, Wings did. You know, don't say goodnight. Um, it you know yeah, no, they have a lot of good good material. Um, Band on the run, obviously. Um, uh, I die. Live and let die. Jeez. Come That's on. one of my favorites, but live and let die. Um, but I just laugh because band on the run is the wing song that everybody knows. And that's the one they always play on the radio. So, well, it was another one of those songs, you know, we, we talk about this kind of music where you, you, um, you juxtapose the happy go lucky music with the really not really happy message of the vocal and you can't that's hard to do i almost feel like that that, that is, song is a commentary on the beatles yeah and i'm not yeah, really I, sure if that was the intention no, but look at the, yeah look at the time frame it and certainly the, and reflects his worldview coming out of he, the beatles yeah well he could have written that while he was with the beatles you gotta remember yeah, they, possibility they both kept a lot of music away from each other because when they signed that contract the contract said all of their music, whether it was John writing it or um, Paul writing it, had to have both their names on it. That was a that was a thing they did legal reasons, uh, money, and all that. Well, other stuff. It, honestly, that helped them keep their fucking egos in check too. Yeah, um, it's pretty amazing that they were able to 
eke out what they did and actually work together as long as they did. Because those guys, look, I'm going to say this with the utmost respect. They're the two biggest assholes in music that I, that I can possibly think of because they are very egotistical. And you can definitely see it play out in what happened. That's why I was saying you can definitely see it play out in what happened to them after the band. So Paul McCartney starts Wings, right? But it's Paul McCartney and Wings. It's not Wings. Well, at first it was supposed to be Wings. That was a that was a decision, if I remember the story correctly, to put Paul's name out there separate from Wings so that they would have um, a, a you know a vehicle for sales because people were like. The, the record yeah, I think I like, remember oh, reading people that. People aren't going to be. I do think you know, I remember reading know. that. I do think I remember reading that somewhere. But yeah, if we go to the just... if we go to the John Lennon side, uh, well, that was the the Lennon Oakle band. Yeah, Oakland. but but he was almost apathetic towards continuing to make music. He didn't it watch was... it. The, he went sailing for a year. I want to say it was a full year. He went on a sailboat and he did not. It was a year or a year and a half that he went on a sailboat. He just disappeared. I mean, he just went on a sailboat and. and sailed he just didn't care anymore like it was like i'm i'm richer it was that whole thing where they said you know like we're more popular than jesus or whatever like he had he, he had that he went, went right to his head and he's like i am i don't have to do anything like no one cares well, i'm gonna go sail fuck it <laughs> they took that yeah they took that out of uh, let's face it they took that out of context what they were saying was that it was a bad thing that they were more popular. Oh, sure, than sure. No, no. And when they when they said it initially, I don't think they actually like understood the gravity of their words. But I think afterwards, when that when everything exploded in their face, and they were like, "Wow, we 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 said something off the cuff, and it pissed people off to the point where I'm beginning to wonder if it's true." You know, it's like yeah. <laughs> maybe we maybe we are more popular than Jesus. I mean, that's why everybody's angry. You know, um, yeah. So yeah, there were I, there were people that were willing to do more for them than they would be for Jesus. And that's that was the that but, was their point. But my point is, like, so if you look at if you look at uh, Paul's personal life, like how many times you've been married now, how many, you know, right. he's he's knighted. He's rich beyond belief. He does still yeah. continue to make music. And that's pretty that's pretty um, impressive. He's not making yeah. like I don't care how much music he puts out and how much money he makes on it. He doesn't care. He doesn't give a nope. shit. Nope. Um. And so uh, I look at John and I don't think he would have cared either, but I think it would have been completely the opposite way. It's like, I've, I've made my money. I don't have to do anything anymore at all. Like I yeah. can literally just retire. Well, and, things were looking up. You, you think about it. They just released double fantasy, right? Matter of fact, double fantasy hadn't come out yet. Yeah. If I remember right, I'm, I'm trying to remember. It was either within a week before or the week after Double Fantasy came out. I have to look up my dates. I know he died in December. Um, he was so he's shot in front of his family. Yeah, in that, front of whole, his home that whole thing is so in fucking, Manhattan. It's so sad, right? It, it is sad. I like, I, I, as much as I hate the son of a bitch, like nobody wants to see anybody die that way. Like he, I would never wish that on somebody. He just got back to where you know what? I'm letting go of my ego. I'm spending time with my young son. Yeah, um, and my wife, and and then. He's like, you know what? I'm going to write. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. It was like, like you said, I'm just sitting here. I fuck this place. I piss on you and piss on everything. I'm going to be who I want to be. I've made my money. I've made my life. I'm going to enjoy it. Then a guy shoots him. Yeah. Um. Well, so to understand the accurate depiction, I know we're getting, we're getting way off track, but to understand an accurate depiction of who John was, we also have to look at the fact that he was married prior. Um. He'd had, Lots, and then this is not to say that other 
guys in rock and roll don't do this stuff, but like he had lots of relationships with random women when they were performing in right. Germany. Well, and um, there's been many people who have come forward over the years and said, Oh, I have John's illegitimate kid. Nobody wow. knows whether it's actually true or not. Uh, again, they had to do DNA, DNA testing and all that. Right. So, um, but the, the, the one interesting one, of course, is that he was married. He did have a child at Julian Lennon with, with his ex-wife and basically disowned that kid for, for and, the majority of his career. And that was the other thing. He was coming back around. Julian was spending right. more time with him. You know, when you hear Julian's um, album, which everybody poo-pooed, you could hear John coming through. Yeah, I, I think he intentionally. So I think Julian actually intentionally tried not to sound like John. Yeah, but he I couldn't think there help was. Some, I do. I do think. Well, yeah, he's got genes. But I think. Yeah. I do think there was some genuine, still some animosity towards the way that, oh, that yeah. John had treated both him and his mother. Um, well, Paul McCartney wrote the song. Yeah, when Paul McCartney wrote "Hey Jude," that was for Julian. That was to say, "Hey." Yeah, we still, you know, we still love you. Which that's and, that's a whole mind fucking a half right there. I got oh, your dad yeah. singing this song, you son of a bitch. Like, you know, yeah. like. and he and well, it's a mind fuck actually to John. Yeah, exactly, that's because, what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm that's gonna get saying, him like, to sing this song, and he doesn't hey, even Jude. know. Yeah, he doesn't even know. <laughs> and then so, later on, you know, he like that band breaks up. They're both they're both kind of talking shit about each other behind their backs and. He's there laughing. He's going, yeah, I got him to sing a song about his estranged child. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think about that, that that's terrible. And if you guys, you know, I know we kind of got off track, folks. We really wanted to talk a little bit about shred. Oh, uh, we're getting back there. Um, uh, uh, technique. So we got time. We'll we're getting back week. there, Jim. We're getting, um, no, we're getting back there. <laughs> oh, we are? Yeah, we got, we got it. Um, we're at 53 it, minutes. We got, we got 15 minutes. Let's go. <laughs> all right. So, well, real quick, what I want to say is that, uh, you know, if you guys have got a band that, that you really looked up to, but when the breakup happened, or at least a temporary breakup, like, look at what Aerosmith did. Aerosmith, they just shit all over what each other. What the hell was that thing? <laughs> um, and then, of course, uh, the Rolling Stones did it for a while. There yeah. was the whole, you know, I'm better than you, um, you know, and uh, Keith Keith Richards who will never die. The one that we, yeah, <laughs> th- th- he is fucking dead. What are you talking about? That, death forgot to tell him. Yeah. They, um, <laughs> what is the, uh, the one band that we should be talking about? If we're talking about band strife. We should be talking about Van Halen. Oh and, my God. And David Lee Roth. Okay. Uh, and, and then later Sammy Hagar, Remember they oh. did that big interview together where they're like, let's talk about what it meant to be in Van Halen. Like when yeah. we once were, um, and, and, and poor Ant, Poor Michael Anthony. The guy never had a bad word for anybody. And he was the heart and soul of that band. And they're like, fuck you. You're fired. Like, we don't care. What? We'll get a better bass player. You know, he like, did now they get your cousin, your fucking nephew. You, like, he did everything you asked. That's like Jason Newstead. I'm sorry. Metallica really fucked him. Yeah, that's another classic example is like Metallica. They've, they've been on the verge of breaking up so many goddamn times in the past because None of those. The only thing that keeps Metallica together, and and I know I'm going to catch hell for this. The only thing that keeps Metallica together is money. Money. Yeah, I was going to say money. money. The guys will Almighty always dollar. be friends, but they don't like working together. That's why you get an yeah. album every seven years because yeah. they do not want to release an album. Like when they come together to do a project, it's it, you watch some kind of monster. It's clearly pulling teeth. None of yeah. those guys anything like one another. There's not a whole lot, lot of camaraderie there. I mean, it's basically what you would expect from a band that met each other through the newspaper, which is exactly what happened with that band. Yeah. yeah. So, and uh, let's face it, you know, they, the, the last member that, well, the fourth member to join, 
fifth member, I guess. Um, you know, when they brought Hammett into the band, that was like, oh, yeah, we, we've got a lead guitar player. We're going to just shit on him and uh, kick him out of the band. Although I'm not saying that he didn't deserve it. I'm, even he admits it now. Are you talking about Mustang? Man. You're talking about Mustang. Yeah. M- M- yeah. Um, M- uh, mustard stain. Yeah. When, when <laughs> I can't listen to that guy's vocals and not laugh at him. I'm sorry, but it's just everything about that band is good until he opens his mouth and starts singing. I just go, oh my God, what the hell? If there's a new way, I'll be the first in line. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> let's talk about shred, some shred mechanics. All right. Um, All right. I think the hallmarks of, shred mechanics are uh either alternate picking or economy picking in some rare cases you'll get both depending on the guitar player and i think sweep picking is a must um all of these guys sweep pick you know i was watching a guy um demo a guitar that like, like there's a there's a youtube channel guns and guitars and he builds these like project guitars and he sent it to another youtuber and i can't remember what the other youtuber's name was and he was playing and he was a shred guy right and i'm watching this video and i'm going He's not even fucking bending. Like there's no, there's no soul in this music whatsoever. There's no personality to it. So I don't even think that's a prerequisite. <laughs> I think it's, yeah. I think it's definitely going to improve the quality of your music. The more techniques you can put in there. So like I would say alternate picking or economy picking, sweet picking, tapping, um, red beach. He's a shred player yep. and he doesn't do a whole lot of the other shit. It's almost all tapped. Yep. So, um, yeah, you know, we did leave out one really important shred player that um, goes right in there with that Yngwie generation, and that's Van Halen. I know some people would argue he's not a shred player, but, I mean, at the time, he was pyrotechnics. That He was the guitar guy for that. And Randy Rose, we talked about him. They were really, those three guys were right there together. So, so Van Halen and Randy Rhodes really debuted at the same time. So, like, they were cutting records at the same time. They were actually playing in different bands on on Sunset Strip at literally the same time, and one guy would go off stage to watch the other one, and and then go fuck, how do you do that? And then the other guy would do the same thing to the other one. So they were just kind of inspiring one another to you know be the best that they could be. Um, actually, Randy was in Quiet Riot at that time, and yeah. suddenly, um, suddenly you know they both get these like amazing record deals and go on to you know be intense superstardom. Um, and really it was Ingvade was the weird one because he just came out of fucking nowhere. Everybody was yeah. still trying to figure out what the hell Van Halen was doing. And then all of a sudden Ingvade comes out and everybody's like, what the hell was that? Yeah. Cause Ingvade was one of the few players that wasn't doing that. What, what Van Halen was doing. He was doing something completely different, uh, completely of his own. And so when he came out, it, you know, like you said, everybody was like, Oh, look at this. We're doing the stapping thing. Everybody's turning up the game. Turning up the, and then all of a sudden, Ingve hits the streets, and they went, uh, "Wait, he's not copying what we're doing. How can we do that?" Can, you can, know, can we can we talk about some similar gear stuff here too? Because yeah. I think there's some gear there's some gear. Let's say synonyms uh, here, but uh, and and what I see is um, so the definitely similarities. So Ingve favors four input marshals. Mark 250 watts or Mark 200 watts. Um, I have heard that some of the ones he uses on his famous recordings are are the uh, 1968 Super Lead Plexi, the 59 SLP or whatever they whatever the model number is. 
1958 SLP or 1959 SLP. Um, I, I just, it escapes me right now. Um, and I, and, and that's also the make of, uh, Van Halen's famous Marshall, right? Um, and Randy Rhodes was using JCMA hundreds. Uh, I know he was using four inputs too, but he was using the current four input, the JMPs. Um, cause the 800 hadn't come out yet. So maybe at the very end, he had an 800 and was using that. But I know that like amplifier characteristics, these guys are all using the same stuff, um, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. And then, so Van Halen obviously had his his hot rotted, um, get his hot rotted strats, and then we had Ingve with his hot rotted strats, just in a different way. Um, you know, the scalp neck thing is like a whole other animal. Um, which I think I saw the year that he scalloped it, that strat that he, you know, that's like was his main strat when he came here. It was like 77. So he did five years before he broke. And um, the other, the other interesting dark horse years, so Randy Rose, of course, he was playing V's. So he was the only one of the lot is like straight up Gibson guy yep. um, at V's. And, and he had some less Paul's. Um, he was hot rodding them with tremolo systems. Which so that kind of harkens back to similar. So you can see these like they need an instrument that's extremely versatile, right? So they're picking something that will give them kind of the tonalities they need, but also give them the features they need to do what they do too. So um in the case of Eddie Van Halen and Ingve, nobody was producing a guitar that did what they wanted. So they figured out how to do it themselves. And actually, even to a lesser extent, Randy Rhodes as well, because he was having like Grover Jackson and people like that modify his guitars for him. So yeah when we stop and examine that, we can see that gear is very critical to pushing the state of the instrument. They have to be able to do you know, these multiple technique things. They can't just, um, they can't just rely on what's already come before. Um, now you'll see, there are some guitar players now that will use off the stuff, off the shelf stuff. To do these kinds of but generally speaking, they're even looking at some area of customization. I think John five plays telecasters, but I know he has, he has some sort of, with flatter radiuses and he has some with the old 7.25 inch radius. He has, in fact, I was, um, I think it was on no guitar save. We're talking about, he has a, one of every single year of telecast. <laughs> so literally yeah. one of every model they've made. Um, yeah. For, for the most part, I mean, obviously when we get the modern area. They, they make more than, you know, one telecaster a year or so. Um, yeah. So when it comes to, it's always been my assumption that when you're shredding, because it's the only way I can go faster in a certain speed, um, you got to have a certain amount of gain. You yeah. got to have, um, because you have to have that compression. There's a certain eh. amount of compression you need. Eh. I, I'm, you know, Betancourt. And you got to have a certain amount of um, uh, sustain. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say typically, yes. I, I, I tend to agree, but I, I think there's outlier players with each of those things. Well, so, there's always, yeah, there's always somebody yeah, breaking out of well, the mold. Like, you know, Betancourt doesn't really use as much gain as people think he does. And right. he relies on that for his pick attack. And then yeah. the other thing is he doesn't, he actually doesn't want as much sustain either for the same reason. Hang on right. a second. I have a yeah. problem. The cat. <laughs> <laughs> She's getting into trouble. Um, Oh my, I also, for for listeners of the show, I'm I'm having natural disasters in my house. My uh, dishwasher caught fire last night, so that was a 
That was what? kind of entertaining. Yeah. Um, so, it? so it was sparking and everything. Like there was some debris in the bottom of the dishwasher. And the nearest I can figure is it, is it got caught. And so the thing that spins inside it was not spinning and it burned out the motor. And then that caused the, the wires that were connecting the motor to heat up. And I think that caused the insulation to melt, which was giving out this horrible smell, which if you've ever melted insulation, you know what that smells like. Yep. And when I opened it up and we like took all the debris and whatever, and I put it back in and turned it on to see if it would work. Um, it started going, and I'm like, what the fuck? So I open oh. it and I can see sparks coming out the bottom of the, um, the door. So my wife immediately turns off the, the surge protector. And as she turns off, I can see the smoke and the little flame coming out of the door. <laughs> I'm going, well, we just had a fire. <laughs> oh, <Hello. laughs> it wouldn't be the first time I've nearly burned something down, but, um, yeah. I will be getting a yeah. new dishwasher this weekend, probably. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. You're of no gear. I, I, well, that that won't change your tone. No. It will change. It will definitely help you eat better. Um, Fuck you. No. <laughs> you call me fat, you son of a bitch. No, no I'm talking about, <laughs> yeah, I'm calling people fat. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's <laughs> ain't that, ain't that the pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> uh, no, it's, uh, <laughs> It's more about, um, uh, no, I'm saying that you won't have to eat off a dirty plate. Uh, Stand there and wash your dishes. Shit. If it came to that, man, I'd either have paper plates or I'd be. I have paper plates and plastic spoons. I usually do that anyway. (laughs) I don't have plastic spoons, but I don't mind mind washing the silverware as much. But uh, I've I've been known to eat off of a... a, um, Paper towel. (laughs) Because I'm like, fuck this. I'm not using a plate. (laughs) It's just a sandwich. My household, um, for those, now we've gone off the deep. The, yeah, the we're, we're yeah, I, definitely, I definitely buy more than 100 paper plates a month. Let's just say that. So since we, we're, we're hitting an hour five, um, I want to, um, we did go off the rails here quite a bit. We want to talk more about Shred. Um, suggest some of your players, your favorite Shred players. Um, actually, let's do this. I got a better idea. Suggest your absolute favorite Shred player, the guy that really does it for you. And then sh- suggest one that you cannot fucking stand. Right. And don't tell us which one is which. Right. We want to talk about both. But we don't right. want to know which one is which. We don't want to we don't want to um, want you to think that our uh, discussion is based on, oh, this guy likes it. So I'm afraid to insult it or anything else. No, no, no not at all. We'll, we'll but definitely me, go in the direction. I, I'll insult it. Trust me. Okay. Um, so, yeah, give, tell us your um, your favorite and your worst. And we'll try to guess which one is which. Based on um, what we know, what little we know about you and your um, and your input, and the, and um, the cool thing about it is, if we do it this way, um, for people who are maybe not clued into some of this underground stuff that's going on too, like maybe you'll get an inclination to go check out some other guitar players you wouldn't normally listen to. Yeah. So, with that being said, uh, we're at an hour and six. I have been David, and I have been Jim, and tonight we were the Practical Guitarists. Yeah.